Now we come in our study of Galatians to the fifth chapter, verses 16 through 26, and you may say, oh, well, we're coming to a very, very simple passage of Scripture, but actually it's an incredibly complex passage of Scripture. We can only scratch the surface in some ways this evening, uh, but nonetheless, even scratching the surface, some of the deepest Pauline theology of all of Paul's writings is found in this section of Scripture. And um, so we will do our best to attempt to summarize what the Apostle Paul is saying for us in this passage. I have avoided all along quoting from my little book on Galatians, but this evening find that it will be, I think, helpful for me to, to do so, if you don't mind. We come now to Galatians chapter 5, beginning with verse 16. This is the Word of God. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these." I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited provoking one another, envying one another. Now, the book of Galatians is a book that emphasizes the finished work of Jesus Christ and the justification that comes, that is to say, how we are accepted by God completely through His blood, righteousness, and merit. We speak then rightly of the finished work of Christ. You know, you rarely hear that nowadays. You just don't. But I want it to be in in our common vocabulary to speak of the finished work of Christ, what he did that is complete, and we add nothing to it. But the Christ who finished his work still works. And through his Holy Spirit, he is sanctifying his redeemed people. Christian freedom is the theme of the book, In verse 1 of chapter 5, for freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He is arguing then that sanctification, growth in grace, manifests the freedom that we have on the basis of the finished work of Christ. And there is a powerful attack on self-righteousness in the entire book and a powerful attack on self-righteousness in the section that we have looked at or just read together a few moments ago. First thing we see in this passage is that we are called to walk in the Spirit. Keep walking, but I say verse 16, walk by the Spirit. Keep walking. It is a present imperative in the Greek text. Not that you walked and don't walk again, but you continue to walk. You keep walking. And walking by the Spirit, he says, is contrary to fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. Now, at this point, I think that it's essential that we spend a little time trying to understand what the word flesh means. If some of you are carrying an NIV, for example, you'll see that it translates its sinful nature, but that's totally inadequate. 
And the only thing I know to do because of time in particular is to read to you what I've written on the subject because I can't say it better than I attempted to say it here. Now, this, this has... Paul's theology is very, very deep. Listen to what Paul is saying. Now, this is what flesh means. The word sarks, by the way, if I read sarks, is the word flesh. Paul, of course, uses the term sarks in a variety of ways in his epistles. In some instances, it means man's corporeal nature. And I give scripture passages for all of these. Sarks also refers to the complete person, body and soul, a virtual synonym for human being. Sarks can also refer to racial solidarity. But Sarks, most often in Paul's writings, has the special meaning of the present sphere of existence determined and conditioned by sin and death. An environment, or more precisely, can be considered as the functional equivalent to eon, or world order, bringing along with it an ethically deprecatory connotation. Spirit and flesh represent two spheres of existence, comprehending two distinctly diverse and antithetical, ethically qualified world orders. Spirit referring to the age to come and its overlapping with the present age. Flesh referring to the present evil age from which the believer has been delivered by Christ's atonement and resurrection from the dead. What Paul has in mind is the massive transition that is the consequence of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He means two opposing ages, the age to come and the present evil age, two opposing kingdoms, darkness and light, two different and opposing ethical environments, two completely different spheres of existence. Paul means the difference between living under law as a means of approaching God and living under grace. Flesh means all that sinners outside of Christ trust in to save ourselves. Kusar rightly says that Sarks means this historical, natural, and earthly sphere from which people deceive themselves into thinking that they can derive ultimate meaning. As such, it is the inveterate enemy of the Spirit who comes as the power of God's new age and who leads ultimately to eternal life. Therefore, the translation of Sarks as sinful nature is misleading because it gives the impression that each individual is divided into two natures, a higher or spiritual side and a lower or fleshly side which vie for control. This is not what Paul means. Instead, he is referring to two realities on which individuals can base their existence, two directions towards which they can move, or perhaps better, two mutually exclusive spheres of existence or environments that constitute exclusive ages or world orders. As R. Jewett says, the flesh is Paul's term for everything aside from God in which one places his final trust. The believer is not composed of two natures, but one nature. Once fallen, now renewed, but still imperfect. Hence the believer's life, renewed but imperfect, becomes the battleground for consistency with that renewed nature. Now, if you say there's a lot there, you're right. Because that's what Paul means when he speaks of the flesh in this passage. 
He means, it's a reference to the evil age, what he called in chapter 1, the present evil age. It is, of course, a reference to our sinful hearts. It is a reference, according to verse 18, to living under the law, under its curse. But if you were led by the Spirit, you were not under the law. Conversely, you see, you are under the law if you are not led by the Spirit. It is an environment. It is an ecology, if you will. It is a total environment. There is the environment of the flesh. There is the environment of the Spirit. And the two are opposed to one another. Now, that being the case, resistance is required. Resistance is required because the Holy Spirit and the flesh are literally translated in verse 17, opposed to each other. Resistance is required because spirit and flesh are opposed so that you do not do what you want, according to verse 18. By the way, there's encouragement there. If you do not do what you want, there's an indication that your want has been changed, your will has been changed, that you actually have deep within, because of the work of the Spirit, a desire for something that you once did not have. And resistance to the flesh is required because though we are delivered from the present evil age, we still do battle in this overlap of the ages, the present evil age and the age which is to come, which in Christ now overlap. We do battle in the ages that overlap, and we are not yet fully sanctified. The contest between this age and all that is characterized by this age, that is the flesh, and the age to come and all that characterizes the spirit This conflict will continue in your Christian life until you go to your grave or until Jesus comes again. Resistance is required because there must be a conscious awareness and effort to follow the Spirit's lead and not be misled by the flesh. To follow the flesh is inconsistent for the Christian because the flesh is an environment out of which you have been delivered by the cross of Jesus Christ. And so it's inconsistent for us to follow the flesh. Again, this is not helplessness. This is true battle within the Christian's heart. It is not helpless because of the Holy Spirit. So that you do not do the things you wish to do, says Paul. And that actually encourages us because it shows that on a fundamental level, we have been transformed. We believers struggle against the flesh. We do not altogether attain our goal, but we are not living impotent, powerless lives because of the life-giving Spirit in our hearts. And that's why Paul adds, but if the Spirit is leading you, you are not under law. To be under law is to be under the curse. The law points out sin, but it can never deliver from sin. F.F. Bruce says this beautifully, to be led by the Spirit is to walk by the Spirit, to have the power to rebut the desire of the flesh to be increasingly conformed to the likeness of Christ, to cease to be under law. So when one comes to the pastor and sits down and says, I just can't do it, and he says, I'm a believer in Christ, you take him to this text and you show him what Paul says, and you say to him, it's a struggle, but you can. You can because you are 
indwelt by the Spirit of God. You can because you have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. You can follow the Spirit and do what God expects of you. You can learn to do it. You can grow in doing it. You can do this because on a very deep level your heart has been transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now that's the first thing we see. It's difficult. It's hard. But walking in the Spirit means walking in the understanding that the age to come has now broken into time and space, and that what defines me as a Christian is that age which is coming. Now, the second thing we see here is that Paul speaks of the works of the flesh. Now, when he lists the, the works of the flesh, the first thing I want you to see is that he could have added readily to the list. This is a selective list. But also, attempts to classify this list have not, in my opinion, been very successful. What are fleshly deeds? How are they recognized? Paul says they're obvious. They're clear. And he lists them here in the text, beginning in verse 19. He mentions impurity, akatharsia, which means unnatural sexual misconduct. Pornea, which means sexual conduct that is impure. And so the Apostle Paul begins the list with pornea and impurity, uh, the unnatural sexual misconduct that was so much a part of the age in which he lived. Classical scholar William Ramsey noted that vice was not regarded as wrong in pagan society in this day. It was regarded as necessary. The only evil was in excess. But in the old religion, it was, it was considered a duty to be impure, sexually impure. Well, that sounds like our own culture, doesn't it? Idolatry is mentioned here. Idolatry permeated life down to meat sold in the marketplace. Witchcraft is mentioned here, or sorcery. We think of incantations and spells, but actually the term here is pharmakeia, which, which means practices associated with what today we would call substance abuse. He mentions hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. He could add to the list. Notice how many of the things, the works of the flesh listed here, are works that cause stress, strain, trouble in relationships. The works of the flesh are manifested in the destructive quality it brings in relationships, marriages, homes, families. We see it all through the world. He mentions orgies, which means revelries. Again, the classical scholar and archaeologist Ramsey talks about Kamos, the revel, who was a god in Greek culture. His rites were carried on systematically, And yet, with all the ingenuity and inventiveness of the Greek mind, which lent perpetual novelty and variety to the revelings, the komos was the most striking feature of Greek life. And I'm afraid it's becoming the most striking feature of American life. So you see that the life of the flesh and that of the spirit are fundamentally antithetical. They are incompatible. And these indicate, that is, these deeds of the flesh indicate that a person is functioning under the curse of the law. Take anger, for example. 
Just take anger, which is in the list. Underneath is a desire to see justice. But there's an unwillingness to leave vengeance in the hands of God and to trust in His providence. And so attitudes that come with anger become functional saviors. The places in which we find our righteousness and our worth, they become our gods. And this is why Paul says that those who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what he says in verse 21. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The encouragement that I think I want to give you before we even move to the list of the fruit of the Spirit is that the Apostle Paul addressing the church of Corinth. Now, what do you remember about the church of Corinth? Dissension, strife, sexual impurity, doctrinal division, all of those things were there and more. And yet the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says this, beginning in verse 9. Turn there, you'll want to see it. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and following. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's just what he's told us in Galatians. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But look at this. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, you have been delivered from that way of life to the new way of life, from darkness to light. You have been delivered to a new environment in which you still may struggle with these things. But these things do not define your life. What defines your life now as a Christian is union with Christ. That you are washed, that you've been cleansed, that you're sanctified, that you're justified. That defines your life as a Christian. So back in Galatians chapter 5, the third thing we see here is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, one of the commonplaces of those who read this passage and study this passage is to note immediately that it's a singular and not a plural. We don't say fruits of the Spirit. But we say fruit of the Spirit. It's singular, not plural. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. One is because it's a package deal. The Holy Spirit is not severed. The Holy Spirit is one. And so it's not what we create. It's what God does. He produces these virtues that contrast with the flesh, that old way of life, that old environment. He produces the virtues that contrast with the flesh and that he commends in this passage. Now, someone has said there's a threefold rhythm of this list of the fruit of the Spirit here. We find, first of all, that love heads the list, and that's very important. I'll say more about that later, but love heads the list. Love that ultimately is understood by what Christ has done for us when he loved us on the cross. And then there's joy and peace, which are eschatological concepts. Joy and peace point to the future, in which we will have ultimate joy, ultimate peace, But we have those things now because the future has broken into time and that's our new environment. And then he mentions patience and related virtues so that we 
are imitators of God in refusing to be intimidated by the wrongs that people do to us. Those are the three portions of the list of the fruit of the Spirit here in Galatians 5. Now we see the list. You find it there in verse 22 and following. He mentions first agape, which is love, already referenced as the fulfillment of the law in verse 6. This love, this agape, is the love that God shows us that now shows from our lives to others. Kara, joy, connected with love in Romans 5.11. Irene, peace, which is based on the objective peace that is made possible through the cross of Christ. Macromathumia, patience, which F.F. Bruce said, there isn't a word like this, but instead of saying short-tempered, the word means (laughs) long-tempered. You are long-tempered now because of the work of the Spirit in your life. Christates, which means kindness. Like patience and love are communicable attributes of God. Agathosune, goodness, including generosity and such things. Pistis, that means faith or trust, but can also mean faithfulness. Proutes, which means gentleness, such as we see in the life of Jesus, Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. self-control, especially in relation to sexual and sensual passions. Now that's the list. What's the point? The point is this. These virtues are the expression of Christian freedom in contrast to the works of the flesh, which are plural. We have the fruit of the Spirit, singular, because the Spirit is one and because all of these virtues are the working out of love that begins the list. Everything in the list is a working out of the very first, which is love. Every one of them. On the contrary, the list that regards the flesh brings dissension and strife. Everything that we find working out through the Holy Spirit in our lives is the working out of love which heads the list. And so the point is this. Against such things, Paul says, there is no law. We're under grace. When the Spirit is in the heart, the fruit will simply be there. You know, there are lists like this in the profane writers, especially the the Stoic writers. They give lists like this. They mention all of these virtues. What's the difference between what you find in the profane writers and what you find in Paul? The difference is this. The lists in the profane writers are duties, and they are human productions. Paul's ethic is that of the Holy Spirit, and there is all the difference in the world between these two things. Law may prescribe conduct, but it cannot produce a heart that simply lives that way. One writer put it this way, A vine does not produce grapes by act of parliament. They are the fruit of the vine of the vine's own life. So the conduct which conforms to the standard of the kingdom is not produced by any demand, not even God's, but is the fruit of that divine nature which God gives us as a result of what he has done in and by Christ. In other words, Congress, if Congress were to pass a law, grapevines produce grapes. They could pass that law, I suppose. But would it work? Would it produce grapes? Would it? 
Are you perplexed by this question? <laughs> if Congress passed a law, vines produce grapes, would it work? Paul's point here, living under law, that's the list you find in the profane writers. They can, they can say love, joy, peace too, but it doesn't work. What produces grapes is the life-giving sap within the vine. And so it is with the people of God. What produces the fruit of the Spirit in our lives is not a command. Produce joy. That's not going to get us anywhere. Produce peace. Produce long-suffering. What produces joy and love and peace and all of these things in our lives is the work of the Spirit, the life-giving Spirit in the life of the believer. And so, he says, keep in step with the Spirit. And this is the fourth thing, keep in step with the Spirit, and it implies three things that you keep in mind. First of all, the cross. So he says in verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, it's very important because there are so many wrong views on sanctification that are out there from the Keswick movement that you hear what Paul says here. He doesn't say continue to crucify. He doesn't say that. He uses an aorist tense. Have crucified. Look at it again. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When did that happen? At the moment that you were taken into fellowship with Jesus Christ. My ongoing struggle with sin must not be allowed to tone down the reality that I really died with Christ. And there is a decisive breach with sin and that I belong to the coming age. So when you came to know Jesus Christ, you died with him. When he died, you died. When he rose from the dead, you rose from the dead. There is a decisive breach with sin that took place then. The second thing then that you see here without seeing it is resurrection. What I mean by that is you don't read the word resurrection here anywhere, but it's all over the page, isn't it? Cross and resurrection are always together in Paul's thinking. Without the word resurrection, the truth of resurrection is written all over the text. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of the ascended risen Lord who continues to work out his resurrection ascension life in his church and in his people. And that then shows us the third concern that we need to keep in mind here, which is the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit in this passage, which produces what Paul calls the new creation. Just turn over to chapter 6 here in Galatians and look at verse 15. There he says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. It's not law. It's not what you produce. It's kinekatesis, new creation. The very words he uses in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, If anyone is in Christ, kinekatesis, new creation. What does Paul mean? If anyone is in Christ, you already belong to the new creation order. And that new creation order that is coming when Christ comes again already defines your present and how you live. 
I wish I could get this through to you. I really wish that you, I, I pray that God will open your mind and open your heart that you see this. There's nothing more important for Christian living than understanding what we call the two-age construct. That in Paul's mind, what he teaches here and everywhere is that we died with Christ. When we died with Christ, we were actually translated into the world to come. And even though we live in this present evil age, what defines my Christian living is that age. So that the spirit who indwells me is the spirit of the future age. That's why we struggle with sin. That's why we fight the battle. That's where it comes from. And that's what Paul is teaching us here. The Holy Spirit in your life calls you to contemplate yourself as already belonging to the age to come. How powerful this is when you are tempted toward the deeds of the flesh. I'm not going to do that. That belongs to this present evil age that is under condemnation. I'm not going to live like that because I belong to the coming age. And that defines my choices. That defines my decisions. That defines my life. So how does all of this apply to my daily struggle with sin? Well, very simply, the old man is crucified. You are not both old and new. You are a new man in Christ, but not a new man made perfect. The old man is crucified. I am new. I belong to the age to come. This is who I am in my deepest reality, and I am to live this way. To live any other way is contrary to what is fundamentally true about me as a Christian. And so in Romans 6, Paul says, You are dead to sin, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Paul does not say, You ought to be free from sin, but sorrowfully this is not the case, so I admonish you to fight against sin. No, he doesn't say that. He says, You are free, therefore fight. In the death of Christ, sin suffered the definitive loss of its right to rule in your life. And so the Christian is a slave who has changed masters. And our master is no longer the devil. We are no longer a part of the kingdom of darkness. Our master is not the deeds of the flesh. But our master is Christ. We belong to the kingdom of light. And that master now shows that he is our master in the fight that we have in manifesting the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And man, this is applicable to relationships all over the place. And that's why Paul concludes in verse 26 by saying, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, because Paul understands that this is about how the church lives. I concluded the section on this passage by saying this. The entire section of Galatians along with chapter 6 is particularly applicable to relationships. Paul began with an exhortation and ends with an exhortation that applies to relationships in the church. Exhortation is an instrument in the hand of the Spirit to spur believers on in their Christian vocation. Let us not be conceited, provoking and envying one another, To follow in the Spirit means not vaunting our wills and desires over others. 
as well as caring for those who struggle, as we will see next time in chapter 6. We must remember that in the fruit of the Spirit, love leads the list and all other virtues work out the meaning of love in relationships. Whatever is contrary to love is contrary to the right exercise of Christian freedom. On the other hand, a Christian can see that he is following the Spirit when his life is determined by love. It is that concrete. So, if you walk away saying, I still don't quite understand the two-age construct and how Paul speaks about the flesh and that seems awfully deep to me, you can walk away with this. How do I know that I'm being led by the Spirit of God? I know that I'm led by the Spirit of God because I love. Again, it's that concrete. May the Lord bless this exposition of his word.